somewhere between 25% and 33%-ish of children have some sort of feeding challenge at home. The parents don't even feel like they could take their child to a restaurant to sit down and eat. This feeding disorder is that challenging to the family. When you hear the phrase picky eating, do you immediately have a visceral reaction? Maybe you're a parent who has to keep the plate perfectly flat, knowing that your toddler will refuse to eat any food that has slid around and touched another item. Or perhaps you haven't quite hit that toddler stage, and you simply recall a time from your own childhood where your diet consisted solely of mac and cheese, grilled cheese, and pizza. For me, I go right to a memory from last week when my almost four-year-old son declared he's not eating anything that is green ever again. Today, I'm joined by Rebecca Taskin, a trained feeding therapist and licensed speech and language pathologist. Rebecca is the founder of Speech in the City and also currently works part-time at a school for children with profound disabilities. Her specialty in pediatric feeding disorders and feeding dysfunction makes her incredibly knowledgeable on this topic, and I'm so excited for you to hear our conversation about understanding and supporting a child's relationship with food. In this episode, we're going to talk about some techniques you can use to start gently stretching your child out of their food comfort zone, things like getting them into the kitchen with you, making mealtime more fun and playful, adhering to predictable rhythms, and taking the pressure off of your kids during mealtimes. For most children, picky eating eventually goes away as they grow. But for about 30% of children, this issue goes a bit deeper and is classified as a feeding disorder. If your child's food restrictions are significantly interfering with your day-to-day life, they may fit into this category. We're going to go over some signs to look out for that could alert you to the fact that you may need to seek professional help and the steps to take. But we're also going to talk about how to manage child's relationships to food that aren't pathological or that aren't a sign of anything deeper, but still are frustrating and challenging for families. So here we go. As parents, we are always telling our children to do something. Share your toys with your sister. Don't throw food on the floor. Markers stay on the paper. It can really feel never-ending. And it's exhausting for them and for us. Little kids hear so many corrections throughout their day, sometimes they start to tune us out. And we often feel like we're stuck on a never-ending loop trying to always correct their behavior. So that's why I decided to flip the script in my next guide. And instead of giving you behavior modifications to try to get your child to do, I'm giving you the swaps to make to your own behaviors as the parent. In my new free guide, Fostering Resilience from Birth, I help you understand the building blocks of resilience with actual phrases that you can swap out of your own language with your children to help your child tolerate distress, to develop a growth mindset, to increase self-esteem, and to be more resilient. So you can stop feeling stuck in those moments when your child is struggling and really needs you the most. And you can start feeling really confident in your ability to support them in whatever challenge arises. To download this guide, go to my website, drsarahbren.com. That's D-R-S-A-R-A-H-B-R-E-N.com. And click on the resources tab. Or if you're listening to this podcast on your phone as you browse through Instagram... I totally see you. Just head over to my profile and click the link in the bio to get access to this free guide.
Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. I've built a career dedicated to helping families find deep connections, build healthy relationships, repair attachment wounds, and raise kids who are healthy, secure, resilient, and kind. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights to help you understand the building blocks of children's social, emotional, and cognitive development, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest on today's episode. Her name is Rebecca Taskin. She is a speech and language pathologist. She's a specialist in pediatric feeding disorders and feeding dysfunction. She has a private practice in Manhattan called Speech in the City, and she also works part-time at a school for children with complex feeding disorders. So I'm so happy, Rebecca, that you are here Welcome. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit how you got into this line of work and how you kind of ended up doing this this work that you're doing? Of course. This is definitely the most gratifying, satisfying job I've ever had. I'm super grateful to be in this line of work. Um, currently, I work with children zero to 21 um, and it's been such a journey to get here. I actually was a med, med student dropout turned speech pathologist. Um, so the background of my thoughts is always medical based. Um, and I actually started working um, at a school for kids with um, traumatic brain injury and working more on the technology to um, assist them in communication. And what I realized was I actually was more interested in helping them with their feeding um, rehabilitation. And so that kind of sparked my interest in feeding and complex feeding cases. And from then on, I've really just immersed myself in figuring out ways to help children with uh, various types of feeding disorders, um, from picky eating to preferred eating to kids who are coming off different feeding tubes. Um, it's a very wide range that I work with now. And I'm super fortunate to have the challenge and be a part of the family life of so many um, families around Manhattan and thanks to COVID um, actually around the world. So it's been really great to um, get here. That's amazing. I mean, that is such important work that you're doing. I, it's got to be so exhausting, but also amazing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I see the struggles. I mean, if your child is not sleeping and your child's not eating, out of the basic human necessities, Parents are really struggling if one of those two things are not working as expected. So to see and be a part of the family dynamic and routines has really helped um, shape me in my practice. And it's I'm really grateful to be a part of so many families' lives. So. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point that you bring up this idea that like when kids aren't eating or sleeping or whatever it is that's not working, it's not happening in like a silo. Mm -hmm. Like it's not like, oh, this child's just not mm -hmm. eating. It affects the whole family because the family system, especially when kids are really mm -hmm. young, it's so interconnected. So if you have one child who is having trouble eating, the whole family can become, you know, profoundly affected by this. And, you know, it, that can be a strength for helping a child get better, but it can also become something that becomes a bit of a, a 
a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Or like, you know, if parents are very anxious about a child not eating, the child starts to feel that pressure and they dig in more. So it's like, it really does sound like it's something that the whole family has to understand and and kind of work together to improve. Oh my gosh, definitely. And thinking about that, I mean, in the United States, we have somewhere between 25% and 33%-ish of children have some sort of feeding challenge at home. And of that percentile, mm-hmm. in like a various reported studies, about 90% of those kids, the parents don't even feel like they could take their child to a restaurant to sit down and eat because this feeding disorder is that challenging to the family. So it's very mm-hmm. real. And I think sometimes parents can feel isolated that they're doing something wrong or it's at their fault or they're the only one that's going through this. But the reason why I work so hard and so much is because it is so – it's a high number, 25 to 33%. They don't really have it nailed down exactly. is a pretty high number for children having feeding issues. Um, so – Yeah. Is it like a spectrum where you have sort of picky eating on one end and like completely profound disorders on the other? Or are these separate constructs? What are we dealing with here? What's the difference between feeding issues, picky eating? These names are thrown out about about kind of arbitrarily. Yeah, there's – it's less of like a spectrum, I would say, and more of like a staircase um, in the sense that Mm. You can have a child who's at the 1% weight tile who is just not a picky eater but just doesn't want to eat. And you could also have a child who's at the highest percentile who will only eat chicken nuggets and is a very picky eater, let's just say, um, of a certain brand, of a certain temperature, whatever, with like X brand of ketchup. So, and like, they kind of like can intertwine. So I don't know that it's linear in a way, but there are things with feeding disorders that overlap. So to answer your question more directly, um, different people have different, different researchers have different perspectives on the different terminology. But as of 2021, it's kind of all lumped together um, as a pediatric feeding disorder, if your child meets certain criteria based on a scale that was developed by Feeding Matters, which is a nonprofit that helps families who have children with feeding disorders. Um, so it kind of allevi- alleviates some of the terminology and kind of helps classify feeding disorders as either yes or no. Um, okay. And what are some things parents need to know you know, when they're try- like, I have a lot of parents who are listening to this, I have imagined who are like, my kid's a picky eater. My kid, do they have a feeding disorder? Like what's the threshold? Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, there, there's a great checklist that parents can go and take <laughs> and it's free. It's on feeding matters. Basically, if you feel like if there's a part of mealtime that is a struggle for you in the sense that your child's eating is interfering with the development and the eating of the family, um, that's a big indication that they might need some support and there could be um, a feeding disorder present. So there's a screening tool um, and it, you know, address things like, does your child let you know when they're hungry? Does you, you know, because some kids are not able to self-regulate. Does your child 
Do you think your child mm-hmm. eats enough? How long does it take for your child to eat? Does your child tell you when they're full? Do they? Do you have to do anything special to help your child eat? So if that's like modifying foods um, specifically for your child, um, so things like that. Whether or not your child meets a certain diagnostic clinical threshold mm-hmm. for feeding disorder mm-hmm. versus, you know, kind of run of the mill, mm-hmm. I have a picky mm-hmm. eater. What is something that, that you feel like parents would benefit from kind of just Overall. knowing like, mm-hmm. what's, what's their role? Yeah. What's their child's role? Yeah. So basically if you're, if you think, okay, my child just like refuses to eat like a few foods, maybe like they're just something, maybe they used to eat it, but now they're not eating it anymore. I would say the first thing in terms of your role is to get your child back in the kitchen with you. Uh, I think it's important that the child understands where food is coming from. It's not just put in front of them. Um, So whether that is like making a smoothie together, which is one of, you know, my favorite things to do with kids because that you could throw so much in there Um, or it's like making something, you know, when I was little, we used to have those, celery logs with the peanut butter, you know, and the raisins, like the ant things. And why I remember those is because that Mm -hmm. was fun eating. So, you know, sometimes it's getting a little bit crafty with your kids who may have some picky eating challenges to figure out ways to like make food a little bit more fun with them. You know, we all have the thought of like, the dad or the mom flying the spoon with the airplane and making all the noises and trying to distract the child to get them food in their body. But Sometimes we have to help them understand that like food is fun. Food is good for them. We want you to love food. We don't want food to be a challenge, um, you know, for you in your life. That's an interesting point too, because I've always, I mean, I'm guilty of the airplane for Mm -hmm. sure, but I also, from a psychological perspective and an understanding, developing a child's relationship with eating, Mm having that be a mindful process, a connected process, distracting them and playing sort of games like that, does it help or does it hinder a child's relationship to eating? Oh, man. it's That's a touchy subject slash hard for me to answer because I don't want to lead anyone down the wrong rabbit hole with this. But um, I think there needs to be a, a combination of heavily on the sensory aspect of allowing your child to kind of regulate and figure out when they're full. Um, and if we always, you know, kind of tell them, okay, you know, you have to eat this amount of food, otherwise you can't get off the table. They might not figure that out themselves, but some children may need that. <laughs> um, so it's, mm-hmm. it's a little, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to answer it concretely. I know, I know everyone's like, why don't you just give me an answer? Like, is this right or wrong? Um, but it really just <laughs> depends really honestly, what is best for your kids. The best example I can think of right now is um, when you have a child who won't brush their teeth and you say to them, child, brush your teeth. And the child says, no. What do you do? You just say, okay, you know, it's good for you to brush your teeth. You know, they don't get it. So you have to like kind of parent them a little bit, like to, you know, get them to brush their teeth. So sometimes with children, it's a little bit of that, a little bit of pushing, um, but never to the point of where it causes anxiety. And I think that that's like the tipping point between a feeding issue and not a feeding issue is like when you start to feel that anxiety built up in the child, what do you think from more of like a psychological perspective, I guess? 
Well, it, it's interesting because the two, as soon as you said toothbrushing, I'm like another massive power struggle with yeah. kids. And, and I think it, my, the first two words that came into my mind was power mm-hmm. struggle. I'm like, how do we not make something a power struggle? Well, one of the ways we don't make it a power struggle is to not give it a tremendous amount of intense attention. Mm-hmm. And because um, our children feel our anxiety mm-hmm. and that makes them anxious. Mm-hmm. And when they're anxious, they get dysregulated and they do things like shut down or throw the food on the floor or just kind of get into a place where they can't comfortably and in a relaxed way enjoy a meal. And so I think a lot of times I find that kids do best when we're all eating together and nobody's really watching them eat. That attempt, that intense attention can be really anxiety provoking in a child. And you brought up a really interesting point about, you know, before when you were talking about a child learning to know when they're Mm -hmm. full or hungry and that that requires a level of regulation. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how like, you know, yes, we want to eat because we need to feed our bodies, but also eating is not really just about food. It's about relationships Mm -hmm. and it's about a regulated nervous Mm -hmm. system. So like, how do we how does regulation play into eating? Okay. So um, a lot of nutritionists have done a lot of research in this area because it's it's about understanding your body's rhythm, right? Um, and understanding Ellen Slaughter, you know, we both love, who is the pioneer, I feel, a lot of this. And she talks about that, which is that if your child doesn't understand what it feels like to feel full, then they're not going to know that mealtime has a finite end to it. Let me give you more of an example. If you say, hey, here's your meal, child, and the child says no, and then you just keep constantly replacing that meal so that, you know, because you are having anxiety that they're not eating it, they're going to never eat that initial thing that they rejected because they're never going to have the Mm -hmm. opportunity to sit there and, like, feel some sort of hunger um, around that item. So – you know, there, there is that to consider too. I mean, obviously we don't want a child to like start losing weight. Um, so it's a fine balance, but a child does need to learn how to self-soothe in terms of eating and figuring out when they are full and when it's time to eat. Um, the GANS model is a model for children who have severe feeding issues. Um, and one of the, the requirements that they believe is that the child needs to feel hunger to understand what hunger is. Children who have some medical past, um, for example, some children who are premature may not have, who are born premature, may not have a fully developed system where they feel those satiated feelings. So, of course, there's Mm -hmm. the medical history to think about too, but for the, let's say, more mainstream um, population, it's just understanding that the child needs to have the feeling of what it means to be hungry and then what it means to feel full. That's really interesting because that makes me think too about like, okay, rhythms. Um, having meal times be this sort of predictable and consistent rhythm so that a child's body can get used to when I'm when I'm fed, the time in which I'm not fed and hunger builds, the time in between those periods where I'm fed again and I 
can eat until mm-hmm. I'm done. Um, and if that's pretty consistent throughout a child's day-to-day life, their body's going to start to get pretty used to what hungry feels like and what full feels like. Now, this requires that parents aren't a, constantly feeding their children because they're feeling anxious. Like if I'm always offering my child food because my child didn't eat what I think was enough at the last meal. And so I'm like, they've got to be still hungry. I have to keep giving them options and more options and more options um, versus sort of allowing the child a little bit of space to, to, to say no at mealtimes. And you mentioned Ellen Satter and I feel like I should just give everyone just a quick um, 101 on her. She she wrote a book, an amazing book called Child of Mine, Feeding with Love and Good Sense. And it's kind of, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca, but it's like one of the gold Mm -hmm. standards for understanding the parent-child relationship as it pertains to food in early life for a kid. And one of the things that she kind of articulates in this book that I found to be just amazingly helpful for me as a parent and just in general is that there's the parent's job and the child's job when it comes to eating. And that the parent's job is that they decide what goes on the plate and when that food is served. It's the child's job to decide what they eat, how much they eat, and when they're finished. And if we can own that our job is the former and our child's job is the latter, it kind of can really let go. We can really let go of our anxiety about controlling something we don't have control over. Yeah. And it gives our child an opportunity to learn how to direct what goes in their mouth and when they're done eating so that they can articulate, I'm done. And we respect that. And eventually they'll learn if that was an accurate, I'm done because they really were full. Or if it was an inaccurate, I'm done and oops, I'm still hungry and I don't have food anymore because I, you know, I showed my mom I was done either because I put my plate away or because I threw it on the floor. And that's usually in my house a sign that, oh, if you're throwing food on the floor, that's showing me you're done. I'm going to put your food away. It'll be time to eat again later. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a good point with that too. I mean, she she has that model and it's kind of hard for some of us to take it in, but it really helps create that division of what she calls a division of responsibility for eating, where it alleviates some of the anxiety around mealtime. So what ends up happening is this cycle where the child doesn't eat enough at mealtime, then they're offered snacks. And then we, we turn this child into what we call a grazer. Like they're just kind of eating sporadically throughout the day. They're never really feeling full, but this is a lot really driven by the need and like for our child to get enough calories in. So then it becomes, you know, all about the calories and the numbers. And, and then that's where I see a lot of the picky eating breakdown starting around about two years old, mm. um, where the tantrums are starting and the power struggle starting and the child's really picking up their parents' emotions and understanding how, um, them not eating or eating or throwing food on the floor or throwing utensils on the floor is affecting that relationship. And what you talk about, which sticks with me a lot is, um, that's where that trust is, you know, and that, that child is looking for the parent to regulate them at that point. Um, and I I really think that when you said that, 
you know, a few, few months ago, it really has always, it's been sticking with me about um, the child kind of testing their parents in those moments of time. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> well, I think because I'm you're referring to a conversation that we had on, on Clubhouse, actually, which was an amazing conversation. Too bad we didn't record it because it would have been a great podcast episode. But, but we talked a lot about this idea of like, okay, when we trust our kids to show us when they're done eating, our kids can sort of own that responsibility and they can relax and we can relax. And even, I think it takes a lot of kind of, I mean, I think parents get a little hung up on like each meal being enough Mm -hmm. versus thinking about maybe the food intake over the course of an entire day or maybe over the course of a week. Um, because you said something really poignant to me once, which was your kid is not going to starve. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why that's a helpful thing to like sort of a helpful mantra for parents? Yeah, most kids will not starve. <laughs> most. Um, we do have kids who are at the one percentile and I do work with a lot of kids who are at the one percentile who are not actually eating enough food. But I don't, mm-hmm. I, your kid will eventually, <laughs> if, if food is provided and you're setting up the structure and it's in this healthy environment and we are have kind of ruled out all the medical underlying conditions and there is no, you know, known diagnosis, your kid will, we hope with everything put in place, your kid will regulate themselves and come up with some sort of regulation system that works for them to help them feel hungry, help them feel full. Um, But yes, it it would be very hard for your child to starve. Um, And I think parents having a fear around that is very high and very not is normal. Okay. It's normal. It's very normal that you would think that. Um, so just knowing that there is support out there, there is people out there, there are parents who are going through the same thing as you. And there is, you know, hopefully that's why you're listening to this podcast, but we are here for you and we're here to support you and kind of figure out what the underlying conditions are and looking at the whole child, because these are not just what we see as manifestations of other things with feeding. It's not, it's not just my kid doesn't want to eat food, right? <laughs> yeah, we talked about the iceberg, right? How like, okay, well, I talk about the iceberg a lot in relationship to behavior and uh, how like you see a behavior, but really that's the tip of the iceberg. And underneath the waterline is all of these emotional buildup triggers, things that are adding pressure on their nervous system that eventually it erupts in a behavior. Mm-hmm. I think that this plays out with food too, right? We see, I don't want to eat this food. That's the tip of the iceberg. But I think underneath the waterline is a lot of emotional stuff around us, a child feeling their parents' attention and anxiety around the food, which can make them feel anxious, which can, and then there's also sensory stuff. Can you, like, yeah, there's a lot. How do we talk a little bit about, about the sensory piece to this? So just to give you some throw out some numbers out there, about 60% of kids who have a feeding disorder have a medical diagnosis, underlying medical diagnosis. While whether it's discovered or not discovered, I would say of the kids I see, nine out of ten of them, I'm figuring out what the medical diagnosis is to refer out to get the actual diagnosis from the doctor. Whether that be reflux. A t- um, mm. some sort of tethered oral tissue in their mouth where they have tongue tie and lip tie where they're not able to use their tongue or lips, um, where they have a tone issue, 
um, whether it's an adenoid tonsil issue, um, things like that. Now, in terms of the sensory feeding challenges, so that falls definitely into the occupational therapy world who are also great who can be great specialists in feeding too. Um, so feeding therapy kind of falls into either speech pathology or occupational therapy. There are some nutritionists who also provide feeding therapy as well. But the um, occupational therapists really look at the sensory components of feeding. So is it looking more at the textures and the feelings around food? Um, obviously, these are things I'm training as well. But it's just a important to think about, you know, when I'm, t- I spoke to three parents today to do feeding intakes, actually. And some of the questions I go through are, are there texture issues that your child struggles with? Will they only eat certain textures? Will they avoid certain temperatures of food? Um, you know, is there colors of food? Most of the kids I work with who have feeding challenges, one of those three things you'll see a disordered in, in that they might only eat brown, round foods, foods that are crunchy, foods that are room temperature, um, things like that. And so that's a whole sensory component to feeding, um, which is something that is involved in um, taking approach into feeding therapy, whether that be exposure to like breaking out of that temperature, changing the texture or figuring out, you know, a color system. So things like that are strongly considered and looked at during an initial like feeding intake um, for sensory feeding. Mm -hmm. What would be some, a reason a parent would want to reach out to you? What does feeding therapy look like and who needs it? Um, so if there, if you have intuition that there's something wrong with your child's feeding, for sure reach out because consultations or phone calls are free. And, um, so we don't like the wait and see approach. Um, that approach usually ends up in becoming a more picky eater. Um, I've seen this over and over and over again, um, where we get a child who went to their pediatrician appointment at two and it's, oh, they'll probably grow out of it. And then they don't and things are getting worse. So these children are children who are now being very selective with their eating, um, meaning eating is becoming a power struggle for parents. Parents feel they have to prepare separate meals for the child. Um, the child is not eating um, certain textures, um, and potentially there's other things going on where they're drooling a lot um, during and um, after meal time, just like out. Um, so there's a lot of different indications the child might have a feeding disorder, um, but I always tell parents your intuition will definitely help guide you there. Plus, as I mentioned before, there's a free screening tool on feedingmatters.org, which you can take at six questions. If you answer two or more of those questions as a yes, um, then it's it would make sense to reach out to a feeding specialist. And what are you going to do with a family? Like, what can someone expect if they're going to be reaching out to a feeding specialist and may may actually their child may need some some therapy? Um, so my my how I approach feeding therapy is very child centered and child led. So I like to get kids messy and dirty with food. Um, so whether that be um, kind of exposure to new foods through play, um, or um, providing them opportunities to eat meals and different foods outside of a traditional meal time. Um, so a lot of the kids I work with have anxiety around eating. So it's kind of creating a more fun, neutral environment for them to eat. I actually don't do any feeding therapy in my office. It's all done in the home because I feel it's easier for the child to handle. Um, and 
over time we develop a relationship and it's through food and it's also through play um, where I'm the trusted adult and I help provide the food for them. And eventually this is carried over hopefully after that session with the parents. Ideally I have parents there all the time, but I do have children um, who get a little anxious when the parents are around. So we have to kind of work with the child um, and the parent in um, a more neutral environment outside of mealtime, maybe through games and things like that, you know, and do a lot of social stories explaining to the child about mealtime, the importance for our body. It all depends on the age of the child, really. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I think it's interesting too, this idea. It makes sense to me that a child that for some kids having the parent there is is helpful. But I think for some, when when you've started to get into a, a dance with your child around mealtime and all of a sudden not really all of a sudden, it probably happens slowly and gradually over time, but you find yourself and your child kind of always getting into the same patterned, you know, dynamic where you're getting more and more frustrated and they're getting more and more resistant. And so when you see families that have kind of dug into this ditch a little bit with food and eating um, and the power struggles, how do you help parents move out of out of that dynamic? Um, well, I think inter- the easiest solution in my mind <laughs> is to introduce a neutral person. So a lot of times either a grandparent, a nanny, an aunt, um, you know, some support system that's an adult, not a child. I'm not talking about like the sister or the brother. Um, some um, mm-hmm. adult caretaker um, I think is a good first step um, to helping with that relationship. Um I've seen that work out very well for families. Um, I also think it's providing consistent, clear feedback to the child. So if I had, a, um, I'll give you an example of the kids that I work with. I had a child that only ate French fries in January when I started working with him. Now he eats. Um, now it's six months later, and he eats a variety of food. But I would leave his session after he would try, like let's say, five new fruits, and his mom would prepare them for him for dinner. And he would say, no, I don't want to eat them. I'm not eating that. And she said, and she, and at that point, that's where I have parents push a little bit because at that point it's a struggle. You know, it's not just a sensory feeding issue. It's that they're just, there's a parent, I don't know what the right terminology is for it, but there's a parent child breakdown where that at that point, the the parent has to kind of step in more as in a parent role and say, you know, you did this Rebecca you were brave I have Rebecca showed me and I send videos and parents um videos and pictures to the parents so we kind of like use those as a model for the child so we'll show them like look you just ate honeydew you know and didn't you were brave and we try to like boost them up a little bit so that they're that power struggle with the parents is a lot less and more alleviated because I feel like sometimes it's not about the food it's about the relationship with the parents you know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. And what about, I'm thinking, you know, we're talking about some kids who have relatively serious feeding mm-hmm. issues or pretty extreme pickiness, but what about the kids that don't have, you know, they don't meet that clinical threshold for serious feeding mm-hmm. issues, but they're just, you know, they're just refusing certain foods. Like I, you know, I, my son is going through a phase right now. He doesn't want anything green on his plate, mm-hmm. you know, what can we as parents do to help kind of 
expand their confidence? Um, so from about two to six years old, children, a lot of children will develop a phobia around food. Um, it's like, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> um, so it's not uncommon. I think continual exposure of that food during mealtime is important. Eating as a family where everyone else is eating that food in a low pressure environment where the child doesn't feel that they need to eat it is also important. Um, but typically we see these kids kind of come back to the food, um, over time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, these very mild picky, like I won't eat broccoli or this or that. And some kids just may not like the flavor of broccoli, like, you know, like, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It's not going to make or break their diet. It's just more what you want them to eat is that one food they don't want to eat. Right. So it's a balance there. Yeah. I mean, I think I, so it's funny cause like my approach, I have two things that I often say to my kids when I put something on their plate and they don't want it. And my son will say, I don't like that. And one thing I usually say is that's fine. You don't have to eat it but I don't take it off the plate. Like I want it to sit on that plate. I want him to see it. I want him to smell it. I want him to accidentally lick mm -hmm. it. You know, I want, I just want it to be there like an exposure kind of, but with like no pressure, right? I never tell him he has to eat it. I just, but I always serve it. And the other thing that I do is when he says, I don't like something, like he's like, I don't like mm -hmm. X thing as like a blanket statement, I'll often say, hmm, you're not in the mood for that right now. Like I just offer a replacement statement mm -hmm. that kind of is a little bit grayer mm -hmm. instead of so all or nothing black and white. I don't like this food as like a permanent way of being versus I'm not in the mood for something mm -hmm. right now, which he's been pretty open to kind of accepting that offering mm -hmm. of a mm -hmm. phrase. Um, he's like, yeah, no, I'm I'm not in the mood for that right yeah, now. Yeah, I kind of do this – First of all, I do the exact same things. The only reason kids usually say I don't like it or I like it is because we frame their minds if that's what you're supposed to say. So <laughs> if I said to the child, mm -hmm. do you like broccoli? I'm framing their mind that you could like or dislike this, right? No matter how it's served, no matter what mm -hmm. toppings are on it, you are framing their mind as from, you know. So better to approach the situation as – you know, when they say I don't like it is what you're doing, providing that more gray area and never really for kids that are picky eaters. I never, ever have the parents use that phrase. Do you like it or not? Because what I'll rather say is, do you think it's salty? Do you think it's sweet? Like describe like the sensory components of the food, um, you know, in a, in a more gray environment, because we kind of will pigeonhole them into that. And then our response to that will usually set off their dysregulation because we regulate our kids' emotions, right? So mm -hmm. that's really interesting. That whole focus on the process of eating rather than the product, like is this good or mm -hmm. bad? But what does it feel like in your mouth? What is it, you know, what are some of the qualities of this food? It's interesting because I talk about that a lot when I'm talking about helping kids build resilience. Um and a sense of intrinsic motivation outside mm -hmm. of eating, just in general. Like when a kid shows you their drawing and we say, that's so beautiful, mm -hmm. or I love mm -hmm. that versus, wow, you chose so many different colors. How did you, how did you come up with this picture? What did you, what were you thinking when you drew it or asking them questions about the process of mm -hmm. creating it and how that orients them mm -hmm. inward to their experience while they mm -hmm. created that versus 
outward towards my approval or my mm. praise. And what you're describing with food is very similar, this idea of like if we can orient children inward, what does it feel like to eat this mm. food? What does it sound like in my ears as I crunch this carrot? Or what does it taste like? Is it salty? Is it sweet? Is it sour? Mm. Whatever. Um that takes them out of this dynamic, right? So if we're talking about kids who have power struggles with their parents around eating, that to take them away from what does mom and dad think about this food? What do they think about if I'm doing a good job eating or, uh, you know, it's, it, brings them back inward, which is where we really want them to be when they're eating. We want them to be connected to their self and their body and their hunger fullness cues and the sensations of eating. Because I think that that helps them develop their own relationship with food. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying is so spot on. And we, you know, in terms of like your child who's not eating green foods right now, it may help you alleviate some of your anxiety about why or what is going on with them internally. If you know, you discover that, Oh, maybe my son doesn't really like sour, salty foods like pickles or something like that, you know, and, or Mm -hmm. other, I can't think of anything sour and salty, but you get my point vinegar, for example. So perhaps like Mm -hmm. us describing it and then them having the internal, um, d- dialogue and external dialogue to express what's going on with them internally made help. And honestly, it's been helping for differential diagnosis to figure out a lot of the kids who have like reflux, like leftover from a childhood, from like infancy, you know, understanding like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't like eating pizza. And like mom's like, how could you not eat like eating pizza? And the child's like, because it makes my belly feel weird, you know, instead of I just don't like it. And how much more insight does mm-hmm. that give you into the what's going on to the child internally versus I just don't like it? Yeah. And so I think we kind of feed them that mm-hmm. phrase. Do you mm-hmm. like it? Ooh, this is yummy. You're going to like mm-hmm. it. Versus, hmm, what's it like to eat mm-hmm. that? What does it taste like? Or what does it sound like in your mouth? Or you know, because you can kind of hear the crunches and the Mm -hmm. chewing, (laughs) like, you know, helping them, giving them language for the experience of eating rather than kind of something being good or bad or I like or I don't like. Um, That's an interesting, I like that approach to, even from the beginning, like when you're introducing solids to a six-month-old for the first time, you know, what are some strategies that parents can kind of use in these very early stages of introducing food to a child that might set them up for a more healthy relationship with food or a more intuitive relationship with eating? The more children I see, the more I learn. And, the, you know, it's you can take a million classes in the world. But really what you see in terms of child development, it's not just about the food. It's about the chi- it's about experiences with the children and everything going on in their world. So, like, as I said in the beginning, my job is amazing because I'm in the homes of people all day long. And I think that's important. Um, and understanding the whole family development and what's important to the family and the priorities of the family around mealtime, around playtime, around socialization, and how that all is in- intertwining with feeding, too. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, if you have a baby who's never eaten food before mm-hmm. and we're making that feeding about the relationship, mm-hmm. about eye contact, slowing down, smiling with them, enjoying that process, 
what does that taste? Asking them instead of saying, mm, that's so yummy versus what, is, what does that taste like? Mm-hmm. Do you taste that sweetness? Mm-hmm. Do you taste that, you know, that's a little bit, you know, crunchier. I mean, a six-month-old mm-hmm. isn't getting mm-hmm. crunchy foods, but I can't think of the adjectives mm-hmm. right now. But, you know, like um, giving them words to describe that experience um, from the beginning. And also I, I'm a big fan, especially when kids are very little and we're just introducing food, um, undivided attention and having it be something that's really about, this is about connection and not really just about getting a task finished. Yeah. And that's what it is. It's about loving food. It's not about arduous eating. Right. Mm-hmm. And and also it's important to not have an infinite amount of time at the table so that you do have a limited time. Um, it's recommended that children really should only be about 30 minutes at the table. Um, longer than that, it becomes, you know, there could be some struggles. So we really try to limit their time so it's not just an endless time to eat and hang around um, and not eat, <laughs> I should say. Yeah, which goes back to managing our own anxiety about like, okay, you know what? I'm giving my, I'm gonna give ourselves twenty to thirty minutes of meal time, and if my child doesn't eat everything I think they're supposed to eat in that mm-hmm. time, then I'm going to accept mm-hmm. that and allow the meal to be mm-hmm. done. And that's hard. It's hard if you feel anxious about your child getting enough food, but I think you can always remember that like there will be another meal yes. time. And it's okay for them to get hungry in between mealtimes because that actually does give their body time to develop those cues of hunger so that they might be a little more adventurous or a little more curious about trying something at the next yes. meal. These are really good pra- points. And you have you know such good experience from a perspective of a psychologist and someone who works in the homes of so many different families. So it's really nice to collaborate with you to help you know, bring a better understanding of pediatric feeding disorders to families. Oh, I know. This is so fun. We should do more episodes on this because I feel like we could really talk for a long time yeah. about this. But so, okay. So how can people connect with you? If if they want more information, if they fear their child might, might have, a, you know, an eating or a feeding mm-hmm. disorder and they want some support, yeah. what can people do to reach out to you? So- please always email me. I will email you back and we can always set up a call and it's, you know, hello at speechinthecity.com. I also just wanted to re-state um, that the website I discussed before, feedingmatters.org, was started by a parent who had a child with a feeding disorder, couldn't really find the help or understanding of what to do next. So she created a directory of feeding therapists all over the world um, that you could search for and find someone in your area. So I would definitely check that out too. What a great resource. I'll put also, I'll put your email and the Feeding Matters website in the show notes so anybody can go and reference that if they need this information. And I hope to see you back on this podcast again soon because this has been just so helpful. Like as a parent, it's nice to hear these things and it's reassuring to hear these things. Um, That even if our kids are having even really challenging issues around feeding that are disrupting the family and, you know, that there's help that, 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 that this is something that people can get better mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, that's, what's so great about it. It's seeing like the whole family recover almost when a child has a feeding disorder and they go through fair 
uh, therapy. It's not just about the child recovering or, you know, getting support. So. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way when I'm doing therapy with kids and with families. It's like I'm treating the whole family always because you can't. You, know, I always say a family is like a spider web. If you pull one thread, the whole thing moves. You can't isolate family members when kids are little. They're just, they're all so interconnected. So clearly that plays out in your work. It plays out in mine. There's something to that, yeah. I think. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye everybody. Letting children learn to register their body's own natural cues for when they're hungry and when they're full is an important experience and we want them to be able to internalize this skill. Knowing that it's okay, necessary even, for your child to feel hunger can be a really profound shift in the way you approach feeding your child. And that shift can help you take some of the pressure off of yourself, which then translates to you naturally removing some of that pressure off your child too. And it's in this calm, relaxed, and low-pressure environment that kids will often begin to explore new foods and try new things. I'm really curious to hear what your experience has been with picky eating. Are you the parent whose kid like devours sushi, or are you more in the chicken nuggets and plain pasta for every meal world right now? Head over to Securely Attached Podcast on Instagram and comment on the episode post to let me know how you're navigating this within your own family, and if you have any specific questions you'd like me to try to address in a future episode. So thanks for listening. And while you're here, go ahead and leave a rating or review. It helps me reach more people and hopefully help more families. And while you're there, subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. Hope to see you back here next Tuesday. Until then, don't be a stranger.